I am Planta on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Already a number one international bestseller, the new book by Dr. Chris Van Teleken, Ultra Processed People, Why We Can't Stop Eating Food That Isn't Food, is uh, an engaging book that might turn you off the ultra-processed food that make up more than half of a typical diet in Canada and the United States. In the book, Dr. Van Teleken, who joins me now, looks at his own habits as he embarks on a scientific medical culinary and cultural journey into the systems that supply our food, how it's processed and how we consume it. For one month, he purposefully consumes a diet that is 80% UPF, and as part of the experiment, his health is monitored. I'll ask him about how he felt during this time and if he noticed any differences physically and emotionally. I'll ask him about what he felt like after the month and what he's come away with in terms of uh, his habits at home and at work when it comes to what he eats. We'll also discuss the addictive nature of ultra-processed food and what we might do and what we might ask policymakers to do as to how food is advertised and marketed to us. Chris Van Tulliken has a medical degree from Oxford and a PhD in molecular virology. He is an associate professor at University College London and a practicing infectious diseases doctor. He's also a broadcaster for children and adults on BBC television and radio and has won two BAFTAs. His Instagram and Twitter handles are at Dr. Chris VT. This uh, new book is published by Alfred Akinoff Canada. He joined me from his home in London, England earlier this week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Chris Van Tulliken. Dr. Van Tulliken, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining. I guess it's good evening where you are. It is. <laughs> but, that, but um, yeah, it's, in fact, the sun is setting here. Ah. Have, I'm, in, it, I'm in London. Have you had dinner yet? No, the, I, I've come back from a day of work at the hospital, and um, the kids have just eaten dinner. They are bathing upstairs, and I'm, I'm shirking bath time. <laughs> um, this month-long uh, diet uh, that, that you, you went on, 80% of um, ultra-processed food, um, in terms of, of um, what you ate in the course of a day, um, could, could you illustrate that? I mean, what are some of the, the common unprocessed foods that you would eat that, that we'd be familiar with, say, even in this country, in Canada? So 80%... UPF as the diet is a very typical diet for a Canadian teenager or for a, for a British teenager. For that mm. matter. This is a normal diet. So a lot of ultra-processed food is sort of junk that you'd expect. So when I was eating my UPF diet, I did eat a lot of fried chicken and burgers, but I wasn't trying to force feed myself. And actually, eating ultra-processed food is incredibly easy. So almost all breakfast cereal is ultra-processed. Almost all flavored yogurts are ultra-processed. Almost all the bread... You buy in a store, unless you go to a very expensive bakery, will be ultra-processed. The fancy sandwiches you get for lunch, even if they're organic and they've got salad in them, they will contain dressings with ingredients like maltodextrin or flavor enhancers, and the bread will be full of emulsifiers. So most of our, you know, in, in Canada, on average, around about 60% of uh, your calories come from ultra-processed food. It's the same in the U.K., same in the U.S. And uh, so it's, eating 80% is no, is no great stretch. Yeah, I guess that, that will surprise people when they read the book, is, is, is um, just how, I was going to say, use the word insidious, um, it is in our diets here in North America especially. Um, yeah. The, 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 we, you know, the, the, the salad that we would, say, pick up at the, at the, at the shop, 
um, because we don't want to, to 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 cook at home. I mean that we we don't think of that as ultra processed, but I guess it is, isn't it? Uh, quite a lot of it will be. So um, uh, a good rule of thumb is uh, if you can't make it at home, it's ultra processed. Another good rule of thumb is if there's a health claim on the package, mm. then it's likely to be ultra processed. So if you if your package says it's vitamin enriched or uh, high in fiber or low in fat or supports your immune system. Uh, the, all of that is likely to be ultra-processed. So there's a huge amount of stuff that's sold to us as healthy that, that really is not. And, and we're very sure now about the health effect. And so, so when people pick up this book, uh, uh, Chris, um, this isn't an advice book. You don't tell us what to do. It's not a weight loss book either. But, I mean, I, I read it and I got very skeptical about a lot of the things I eat and a lot of things that I see advertised as food. I mean, there's... I'm I'm very anxious about two things. First of all, I hate giving people advice. I don't give my patients much advice apart from around very specific things. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm an infectious diseases doctor, and I will tell people how to take their antibiotics for a specific infection. But I don't understand people's lives. It's not for me to tell you what to do. But I do think that people have a right to information, and they have a right to affordable, healthy food. And so there is in the book a simple invitation to the reader, which is to eat ultra-processed food to continue what you're already doing whilst you read the book. Because I think we're all part of a huge experiment that we didn't volunteer for. So new molecules and new combinations of old molecules are trialed on us the whole time to see which of them is best at getting money out of us. And we take all the risk in this experiment, and those risks are sort of piling up around us. Uh, So poor diet is now ahead of tobacco as the leading cause of early death on planet Earth for human beings. And that is especially true in places like Canada and the U.S. So we take all the risk. The company, a very small number of companies take all the benefit. And those companies are owned by a very small number of individuals. Mm. So my invitation is if you recognize in yourself that you have an addiction to some of these uh, ultra-processed food items, it won't be to all of them. Your weakness may be a particular biscuit or a cake or a bread or a chocolate bar, but if you recognize that you're addicted, then eat along, and you may find by the end of the book that eating the food is, is somewhat harder. But I don't want to make any promises that part of the point of the book is that what we eat isn't really a choice, that we are stuck with a food system that is fundamentally violent to our bodies. So I, re- I read most of the book late at night um, over the last few nights, and, and um, so this is, this is in the period of time where I've already had supper, and uh, I'm about to go to bed, and so the, and, and my next meal wouldn't be until the, the morning when I woke up. Um, and I had two distinct feelings as I was reading the book. I was disgusted at, at some of the things that I've been eating over the, the course of my day even. And, um, and then at another point, I also felt, like you talked about Diet Coke, and I'm not a Diet Coke drinker, but I like regular Coke, if you will. Um, mm. and, and you talked about the psychological effects that, that, that the, the can of Diet Coke would have on you. And I, I, I literally could taste it in my mouth as I was reading it. Um, you, you talk about in the book about, because um, um, you, you, over the course of this month, you, you'd switched from regular Coke to Diet Coke. Is that right? That's right. And the, the diet sodas are so intriguing because one of the arguments that the food industry has you know, I think there's been a lot of interest in this book in, in Canada uh, uh, over the last couple of weeks. There's, there's huge interest in it in the UK. I think because people 
are ready for the idea that the food companies are the new tobacco companies. Mm. And so what we're going to see, and, and you know, listeners will notice this, is over the next few weeks, the food industry will begin pushback. And they'll say, well, we can just reformulate ultra-processed food. We can, we can change the ingredients and we can make the products healthy. And Diet Coke is the ultimate example of, you know, the only thing that gives you uh, risk of weight gain in full-fat cola is the sugar. And if you can replace the sugar with something that for most people is indistinguishable, you know, an artificial sweetener, surely that would be associated with weight loss. And yet, as the World Health Organization published yesterday, it's very clear that diet sodas do not promote weight loss, and they may increase your risk of metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes. So something is fundamentally wrong with the way we understand food. And, and I think the, the diet sodas are a good example because they're an example of the lies that ultra-processed food tells us. So we've replaced the fats in a lot of these products with strange gums like xanthan gum, which is a bacterial exudate. We've replaced the sugars with artificial sweeteners. We've replaced the proteins with protein isolates and with um, synergistic umami flavor enhancers. So the, the, the experience of what's in our mouths and our mouths send signals into our bodies to prepare them for nutrition arising. If we get sweetness in our mouth but sugar doesn't arise, that causes this strange mismatch, and that may be part of what drives us to eat more. And so, so what we're pretty sure is if you drink a diet soda, you'll eat more French fries with it, or you'll eat more chips, or you'll go and seek out sugar elsewhere. Because you've spiked your insulin, your blood sugar will drop, and you'll need to get the sugar from somewhere. You'll experience a craving. Yeah, you remind us in, in the book of, of a tweet that Donald Trump sent in 2012. About, oh, yeah. And he's been known for his overconsumption of Diet Coke. Um, he, he tweeted about saying it doesn't work. And, and I mean, even if, if he could realize that, that people would eat more consuming it, um, <laughs> I think the rest of us should take heed, you know? At least you heed, take you up know? on that. I mean, my point is sort of if, um, well, I don't want to be political, but, yeah. you know, Donald Trump isn't, it, whatever else you may think of him, he's not a nutritionist. Yeah. And, uh, and yet he seemed in 2012 to have completely understood that these drinks just make you eat more. And why the nutrition community hasn't latched onto this is pretty straightforward. It's because a huge amount of research saying the opposite has been funded by the companies that make the drinks. And um, the extent to which industry controls the narrative in Canada, the United States and the United Kingdom cannot be overstated. So industry pays doctors, it pays all the influencers, it pays people who write the National Nutrition Guidelines or science that underpins those guidelines. It pays the charities that inform guidelines. It pays patient activist organizations. It pays um, uh, entire government programs. In the United States, there was a program called Exercise is Medicine, uh -huh. which promoted the idea that if you exercised, you could lose weight, something we know isn't true. And it was funded by Coca-Cola. So, you know, the idea that we're all a bit confused about, about this is, is not surprising. But the message of the book is incredibly simple. It's just saying that food made by transnational corporations whose only purpose is to pay money to shareholders is very different to food made by people who love you in their own homes. Yeah, yeah. Jamie Oliver comes into focus in the book as well. Um, and you talk about his, his, his uh, uh, program there in, in England, um, which uh, caused you concern because, as you just said, it, it was... Uh, he, he was partnered. He is partnered with the food industry, and um, um, so that begs the question, then, uh, Dr. Van Tulken, if that's the case, um, 
what's needed then from policymakers? Is it is it um, say taxation, greater taxation? Is it uh, 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 say regulations that, that need to be enforced or even created? Say, so it's such an important question. We we have to deal with this stuff as nuance, with real nuance. For many people across Canada, for many Indigenous communities, for many low-income families, for um, uh, people who are struggling, especially in the current cost-of-living crisis, this is the only affordable and available food. It's what they've eaten their entire lives for multiple generations. This is what we eat. And so if you tax it, you create a huge problem. The first thing um, I think that Canada can do, and in fact Canada is ahead of the United Kingdom on this, is put the idea that ultra-processed foods are associated with early death, cancer, inflammatory disease, metabolic disease, and weight gain, along with anxiety, depression, um, and dementia. Put that in the national nutrition guidance. The second thing is a cultural change amongst policymakers about how we think about food companies. At the moment, there is a very cozy relationship between people who write policy and uh, people who make money from diet-related disease. And we need to start realizing these companies are the new tobacco industry. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily we portray them as evil. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we refuse to speak to them. We have to speak to them to generate policies that are workable, but we do have to refuse their money, and doctors and scientists need to be the first groups to do, to do this. And then we need to stop the marketing. I mean, it's, it's really straightforward. If you've got a box of you know chocolate-coated sh- sugar bombs, there shouldn't be a monkey or a tiger or an elephant on the packet, selling it to my five-year-olds. You know, it's, it, that, that to me is very uncomplicated. And wherever you sit on the political spectrum, so, you know, people on the right don't like nanny statism or, or you know, overreach of government. But what the people on the right and the left can agree on is everyone is entitled to their freedoms, and that should include to be free of misleading marketing of cartoon characters that say that things are, say things are healthy for kids that aren't. So, and then you can change institutional food, and then you can start really promoting and subsidizing real food. Mm. At the moment, real food is not affordable for many, many Canadians and certainly not for people in the UK. I mean, in the UK, we have even bigger income gaps than you do in Canada. Um, so there's a long list of things that people can do. For the individual listener, and I think the demographic of people who are listening to this, they will be perhaps disproportionately people with a little bit more money, some resources, they'll be educated people. Um, there may be an option if you recognize you're addicted to, um, to be abstinent from UPS. And that's what I've done, and it's what lots of people who've read the book have done, because I think there's a growing understanding this isn't really food. It's just an industrially produced edible set of substances, and uh, the ways it harms our body are very wide-reaching. And actually, when you start eating real food, life becomes, you, you not only become healthier by any measurable uh, you know, bud test, but you also start to feel better. So you you undertook this this um, diet, uh, this one month diet, uh, with your twin brother, and um, uh, uh, your identical twins. Is that right? Well, so my my twin brother actually was um, he lived in the states for a long time. We're identical, uh-huh. and he gained a huge amount of weight. So yeah. I did this. I did the diet solo. I see. But I did it partly out of interest in his health. So it was. I was the first patient in a much larger study that we're running at University College London um, where we're going to look at ultra-processed food. So this wasn't a stunt I did for the book. This was a, a very carefully executed uh, research where I was the first patient getting pilot data. 
And we saw several things happen. So I wasn't force-feeding myself. I was just getting 80% of my calories from the EPF. The first thing is that I gained weight at a rate that meant within one year I would have doubled my body weight. So the rate of weight gain without force-feeding myself was was really high. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that we found when we did blood tests looking at my hunger hormones, that at the end of the diet, once I'd eaten a standard meal, my hunger hormones were still sky high. So this is food that interrupts your brain's ability to say, I am full, it's time to stop eating. And the third thing was, a, was an MRI scan, uh, which showed a huge increase in connectivity between the um, habit-forming automatic behavior parts of my brain and the, uh, and the addiction centers in the middle of my brain. So if this is happening to my brain, which is in its mid-40s, you know, it's quite, quite hard to do much to my brain without... Mm-hmm pretty extreme interventions, we're really concerned. And I think this isn't just me. The World Health Organization, UNICEF, many of the international research groups that study ultra-processed food at some of the world's best institutions like Cambridge and Imperial McGill uh, are really, really, really uh, troubled by the effect this is going to be having on children. And so day-to-day for you, what did it feel like? Did you notice that when you were on this diet for a month, did you notice things? Did you, were your sleep patterns off or were your bowel movements different? There's a, there's a theory in the literature, which I think is very persuasive. When you look at the health effects of ultra-processed food, almost all of the diseases of sort of what we might call Western industrialized life mm-hmm. seem to be associated with increased ultra-processed food intake. And what I found was that I got heartburn, constipation, I became sleepless, I became anxious and depressed. As I became more anxious and I got more heartburn and I was more constipated, I would uh, uh, spend more time up at night. The food's very dehydrating, it's full of salt. So you spend, you know, if, if you're, uh, men in early middle age will recognize that you start to pee more at night anyway. Mm. You know, and this, this just started happening a huge amount. As I became more sleepless, I started craving the food more because you're, you're stressed and anxious. So none of it on the diet felt really like it was the food. The revelation came at the end of the diet when I stopped eating it and I stopped yelling at my kids. I stopped feeling angry the whole time. I started being more productive at work. And it was once I quit that it became obvious that all those symptoms, which just felt the way lots of us feel every day. I mean, lots of people listening, mm-hmm. you know, have busy jobs, like, you know, being a doctor in a big hospital, it's somewhat stressful, it's occasionally boring, it's often frustrating. And you think that your problems are to do with your life and your marriage and your children and the anxiety and, and your work. And in fact, a huge number of the problems that we all experience are because we eat food that isn't food. And so um, did you notice that change overnight, say, once, once you got well, off the about Within about 48 hours, but mm. something had happened during the diet. I was speaking to this scientist in Brazil called Fernanda Rauba, and she was the one who used this phrase, uh, industrially produced edible substance. Every time I said food, she yeah. would correct me. <laughs> yeah. to, the point, to the point where I was annoyed by it. And um, uh, at the end of that phone call, I sat down to eat some fried chicken, and I couldn't eat it anymore. She had, she'd flicked some switch in my brain, and it was a bit like the smoking quit smoking but there's a book called i think it was a huge bestseller in the states and canada it's called the easy way to quit smoking and the alan idea Carr, is smoke, yeah. it's alan Carr, and you smoke yeah. while you read the book and sort of what i want to give the reader is uh, this food if you st- 
still desire it, it's going to be impossible to quit. And what I want to do is, I think you used the word discuss. Yeah. And in a way, I want to discuss the reader and, and make them unable to, uh, to keep eating it. And so the invitation is really just keep, keep eating while you do it. And I want to do to you, the reader or listener, what Fernando Raubert did to me. Because once you start mindfully eating this food, you realize it's utterly repellent. I mean, yeah. you're eating a biscuit, and it's full of mono and diglycerides and fatty acids and palm stearin and, you know, exhausted vanilla bean extract and all this stuff that isn't, it's not real. It's waste products left over from the food industry. Yeah. And I think that that's what, uh, why we turn to these things. You know, people, people with means even uh, turn to these things because, you know, if you go to the grocery store once a week and buy fruit, it's not going to last... Uh, the rest of the right. week, but if you buy a, a box of biscuits or, or chips or, or, or these things that, that uh, are, are wrapped in, in packaging, the, you know, this stuff will last long. And, you know, one would also save money. Um, do you think that, that um, the, the availability and the affordability of it is, is going to be hard for a lot of people to turn off, say, to turn off from? I, I think that is such an important point that you can't labor too much, is this food, this food has displaced our traditional diet because it is convenient and cheap and it's sold to us and it's somewhat addictive. And that, you know, the book risks making an argument that is fundamentally stigmatizing, potentially misogynistic, which is saying, you know, if you start telling people, you know, we should all eat inconvenient, expensive, low shelf life food, that risks turning around very positive progressive changes in, in the labor force where um, women have been able to go back to work. So I, I try and make those, that argument with, with real nuance. It is not going to be easy, particularly in the UK. Uh, it, is, it is really hard to, uh, to figure out how people have the time to make real food. I, I, personally, I think those aren't arguments that someone like me should be making. I am I'm a physician. I have a certain amount of time. I have a certain amount of money. It's not for me to tell people how to live. There are some amazing resources in Canada and the UK where people with lived experience of feeding a family um, on, on very little money uh, do give great advice. And it is possible to do, but I, I would not want anyone who was struggling with that problem to feel ashamed that they were struggling. You know, but everyone should feel angry about this. Mm. I mean, our, our food system is, is, is horrible. It's, it's not about supplying food to us. It's about supplying our money to a small number of investors. And at the end of the book, if you, if you have to keep eating ultra-processed food, you must turn your rage into activism. I mean, mm. that, that's what we need is activism that is, that is distant from the food industry. So you have a, a, a busy job at a hospital. Uh, what do you eat during the course of the day? What do you pack for lunch, say? Or, I mean, or, or do you find yourself some days when it's really busy or, or you haven't prepared even, um, turning to ultra-processed food sometimes? So if I were to not pack lunch, yeah. uh, it would be almost impossible for me to get a lunch that wasn't ultra-processed. All the food in the hospital canteen is, all the sandwich shops and the little sushi place and the burger bar, everything around the hospital is ultra-processed. And all the food we feed the patients is also ultra-processed. So my lunch most days, I, I eat, I eat uh, black coffee for breakfast. I eat a pretty small lunch, you know, some nuts. Um, but I eat, I eat a couple of bananas, a handful of nuts, maybe some, some small tomatoes and, and a couple of apples. And that leaves you feeling pretty full and, and, and pretty good. But I, I, I am like an ex-smoker now. Or 
the question of would I eat ultra-processed food is a bit like saying to a vegan, well, do you ever eat meat? Or to, mm-hmm. to someone who is uh, Muslim or Jewish saying, um, do you ever eat pork? It's just, for me, this stuff is non-kosher, it's haram, it's forbidden, I don't, I don't, I don't touch it. And the, the, I'm not tempted by it. The only time I eat it is occasionally just to be polite. And so what's it like in your house? Because you have young children. Um, I, I'm assuming that, that they eat this stuff, or they, they, this stuff finds they, itself in their diets. How, how does it? They how, do. they, yeah. Look, I really want to be honest. My kids still eat quite a lot of, of rubbish. So um, uh, when they go to kids' parties, it's really important to me that they are normal. And in the UK, a children's party really just means eating garbage all day. So <laughs> I don't ban them from that. We don't have much of it in the house, but you, you know, grandparents and friends bring stuff around and so quite often after dinner they'll have a piece of chocolate or whatever we we breakfast they usually have porridge but i'll also make them remember you can make if if you if you have time and resources i can make a stack of waffles a foot high and cover it in butter and maple syrup and that's fine that's not ultra processed you know i i make them myself and i have a good canadian recipe for doing it so um so, so you you mentioned um, uh, uh, your, your brother's weight gain, and I and I I want to make the point that that he had moved to to, to uh, was it Boston? Is that yeah. where, where 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 that happened? Say he was he was studying in Boston, and he um he, he, yeah he, he had a very stressful situation. Yeah. He had a unexpectedly had a son at the beginning of the year, and it's now Julian may be listening. He's a you know he's very much my nephew and he's you know he's a he's a whole you know he's totally part of our family and and he's you know i love him like my own children um but it was stressful for zand as a as a, as a young man to have this happen unexpectedly he lived above a burger bar bartley's burgers and he just put on 30 kilos uh, while he was there in his first year of university ironically doing a, a master's degree in public health um and one of the main experiences of having an identical twin who lives with significant obesity is that I nagged him for a decade. And a big part of the book is me speaking to a behavioral psychologist who said, you know, Chris, you are the problem. It's you nagging your brother mm. that means for him to lose weight, he will lose an argument with you. And it, once I stopped nagging him and, and, you know, just let him be, he kind of read the book and, and has now... I, I hate celebrating weight loss because weight loss is so hard for so many people. Um, anyway, he did lose a huge amount of weight. I have to say, I found it quite hard to lose the weight I put on, on, the, on the diet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's nagging our loved ones. If you're, if you're being nagged, it, it is really hard to get control of your own life, of your own problem. And uh, if, if anyone is listening who recognizes that maybe they are slightly seeking to control the diet of their husband, of their kids, you know, I, this is not, I hope, a book that's going to increase the nagging that, that we all do for people we love. Yeah. You, you do talk about obesity and, and how we should talk about it or how we should even refer to it as. Um, yeah. I, I mean, some people think it's a disease. Some people think it's an identity. Um, we, we shouldn't describe it as uh, such, I guess. Is that right? I think there's, there's, uh, the, the, the medical profession describes people as being obese. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty offensive. You know, the language has moved away from 
describing someone as a diabetic, as an epileptic. We don't say people are cancerous. We say that people live with problems. They live with epilepsy, diabetes. It doesn't define them. And so I think it's very important because so many of us live with overweight and obesity. I live with, with overweight. So we don't have to have that as a thing we carry with us always. But some people, when they see their doctor, do need to discuss that. And so I think it's good to say, you know, someone who lives with overweight or obesity. I mean, if the book changes only one thing, it is to destigmatize everyone who is living with increased weight and help people understand this is like blaming smokers for, uh, you know, tobacco-related cancers. It's, it's, it's completely pointless. You know, everyone got lung cancer because cigarettes were aggressively marketed to them and the science was all covered up by the tobacco industry. The same thing is now happening with food. So, yes, I think how we discuss identity is, impo- is important. The food industry, it's worth saying, there is, a, there is a slipperiness here because the food industry is very involved with people who want to shut down all discussion on obesity. So saying obesity is a problem is, mm-hmm. is rightly offensive to many people I have to say, I think we must be able to discuss obesity, particularly in children, as a problem, um, and, but we have to keep a laser focus on the food and the corporations and not the individual. Indeed, yeah. The, the onus is always put on us, I guess, as people. Um, it, it, it should we do shift, it for right? ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, anyone living with obesity, so many people I spoke to for the book blamed themselves for their problem because they experience this failure of willpower. But these products are, the science is very clear, they are as addictive to those who find them addictive as heroin, cigarettes, cocaine, or alcohol. They are incredibly powerful drugs. So the, the book, as you mentioned, is, is already a big success in, in, in England and, and as well in Canada. Um, what do you think it says about us as, as readers who, who are, say, now more interested, I guess, in, in what we're eating. I mean, do, do you think that there'll be, do you think change will come about as a result? I think one of the things I, I've started to realize, readers or listeners may recognize that it isn't just our food that is ultra-processed. Ultra-processing is just a set of, it includes marketing as well as all the stuff we do to the food and the additives. It's a set of processes designed to generate financial growth. Our phones, are also ultra-processed. The apps on the phone, the social media, are also addictive because they're ultra-processed. Much of our music and our TV and our computer games, they're ultra-processed. Ultra-processing is all around us, and it's a set of processes designed to extract money from us for this very, very financialized system we live in. I think people are starting to realize that this growing gulf between the exceptionally rich, between the billionaires and everyone else, is because of this ultra-processing, that this Mm. was exacerbated by COVID, and people are sick of their lives being controlled by a very small number of individuals and a a tiny number of companies. And so I hope the book will catalyze a a wider discussion about the extent to which we let corporate power dictate what we eat, how we gamble, what alcohol we consume, uh, you know, all the harmful industries that affect our lives. And I, I... I think in the UK it's connecting with people much more because of the, the message than because of the sort of the book itself. I think I think people are ready for some kind of antidote that 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 they people are realizing. Well, this isn't my fault. I didn't do all this. I didn't mm. mess up the planet. I didn't destroy my body. 
This is being done by incredibly powerful. Chris, are you there? I'm so sorry, Joe. I didn't know what happened. <laughs> it's, it, it's eerie when you're talking about powerful people having control and then the line cuts off. <laughs> I, 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 I love that idea. Yes, I, I have become slightly paranoid in, in a way. I mean, people are sick of transnational corporations controlling their lives. These are ha- Most of the corporations are housed in countries where they don't really pay any tax. They contribute mm-hmm. very little to our lives. They do this rent-seeking where they own a brand that just pays them money or they dig oil out of the ground. They don't contribute much to the economy. They don't employ huge numbers of people. They're incredibly extractive from the global south to the wealthy north. Um, they are in- inequality generators. And the pushback I've had on Twitter is yeah. it's very subtle, but there are some scientists funded by big confectionery companies, mm. big food companies, that are really being very aggressive and unpleasant. And, you, you know, you can mute them. Sure. But many of my colleagues, you know, colleagues at the World Health Organization, colleagues at UNICEF have been um, really, really targeted in very aggressive ways for doing a lot of the research I cite in the book. So the, these are companies with the, the power of a medium-sized European country. They are enormously powerful, and they are not very happy about the book. Yeah. That sounds grandiose. But, yeah, they, the, the, the problem is the concept of ultra-processed food is an existential threat to the companies that make our soda and our, our, our fried chicken and yeah. our, our confectionery. And pe- people should just read the book and decide for themselves what they want. And I, and I think um, you're seeing that, and, and, and long may it continue. Uh, Dr. Van Telken, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Congratulations and continued uh, good luck with the book. I appreciate your time. Good night, Chris. So thanks for all your wonderful questions. I've really enjoyed the chat. Thanks a lot. The Twitter and Instagram handles are at Dr. Chris VT. The book is called Ultra Processed People, Why We Can't Stop Eating Food That Isn't Food. And it's published by Alfred Akinoff Canada. Its author, uh, Dr. Chris Van Tullican, joined me on the line from London, England. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Planta.